What would you do if you could do anything? Welcome back to The Purpose Effect. I'm Elena. And you read through these reports and and it leaves an impact on you. You read it and you're like, something needs to be done. And then it's a question like, are you going to do something about it? Or are you going to pass it on to somebody? Or are you just going to let it sit in that pile of like, don't know what to do with you? For me, when I feel like I can do something, I'm like, what's it to me to make a phone call, you know? or do a post on social media. And the best thing about Instagram so far has been that there are so many people with so many amazing skill sets that come forward and they're like, I can help you with this. Welcome back, everyone, to a brand new season of The Preppers Effect. We are kicking things off with Chantelle Lee, a graphic designer, multiple business owner, and community organizer based between Sydney and Kuching in East Malaysia. Chantelle knows a thing or two about how to get things done and how to galvanize a community around a cause. In 2020, Chantelle started Kuching Food Aid, a community-led project to deliver food aid to communities badly impacted by the COVID-19 lockdowns and suffering from food insecurity. Many of these communities were beyond the reach or the resources of the NGOs and the government services in Kuching, What was amazing about Chantelle's work was not only how quickly she managed to raise funds for the project, but also how she persuaded supermarket chains, private businesses, and volunteers to get involved, donating time, their products, and resources to the cause. She also managed the logistics of this operation from almost 6,000 kilometers away in Sydney. For anyone wanting ideas on how to inspire communities, businesses, and NGOs to work together and impact more lives, this conversation is for you. We talk about how to start with what you have and how to use this to best effect. We talk about the importance of visual storytelling and clear calls to action. But to begin with, we talk about how an entrepreneurial mindset and the belief that she could climb into a paper boat and not sink was instilled in her from young. You know, I grew up in a family-run business. My dad's a, he's a cardiologist. So from young, I've always witnessed what it takes to sort of run a small business. And I've realized this now looking back, um, you know, growing up as a child, I was picked up from school. I was, you know, waiting around the surgery, helping my mom because she was, you know, manning the desk. My dad was the doctor. Watching her, you know, go through the things that she had to do was tediously monotonous and boring. Um, but I got to see the back end now that I see it, um, of how to run a small business. So I think when I left university and I had the opportunity to start freelancing, I kind of already had that business skill set set in from young about the monotonous day in, day out of like how to run my own, you know, personal freelance business about, you know, billing and, the mundane mundaneness of, you know, getting things and deadlines and things having to happen. So I think I wasn't scared to start my own business, but I guess as a graphic designer, all you needed was a, a laptop. So the startup was zero cost to me because I already had everything that I needed. I just needed, you know, clients. So I was pretty lucky. Probably when I finished university, I already knew I wasn't ready to go into, you know, into corporate um, working for big agencies because I had applied to go and do a shoe design course in Italy. So I already, I think inside me was like, I'm not ready to enter yet. I'm still exploring my creative, um, passions. But as I started freelance as the job skill as a graphic designer, I was like, I actually can do this job. 
and um, I ended up not going to study shoe design. I think it was just, um, you know, there was a road already set for me by the, by my you know, uni professor coming to me saying, hey, I've got a client. Do you want to go? I went, met with the client, and I was able to do the work, and it wasn't hard. So I think that was probably a great thing. I felt like I could do this, and I wasn't scared. And are you a planner or was it very much like, okay, this opportunity is in front of me. I'm just going to take it. And, and then I'm, I'm going to figure out a way to get to the next one. I am not a, I'm not a planner. Yeah, no, I am not a planner whatsoever. whatsoever. Um, no, I was definitely just like, I will just hop on this little paper boat is what it felt like in this sea of like unknowingness. Um, and I'll just hop on that paper boat and hopefully I'll stay floating and not sink. So definitely not a planner at all. No, no, no way. And then when you went to, you moved to Kuching, right, with with your husband, um, and then you set up another business. I did. I set up another business. So I was a graphic designer for about five years in Sydney. Um, and then I got married and I moved to Kuching, and I thought that that was going to be the end of my life. Like I thought, that's it. I'm never going to be employed in Malaysia. No one's going to want to use me. Um, and my clients will dump me. I just thought as soon as I told my clients I'm moving to Malaysia, then that's it. And I probably resented my husband a little bit at that time because I thought, you know, I'm moving to a new country because of your career, but, like, I have my own career, and it was really quite torn. But I guess I was also raised, you know, in a family of feminists. Like, my mum and dad were really, you can do anything. They said to me, before you get married, go to Kuching for six months and see if you can still work. Set up an office there. They said, don't even think about getting married yet. Go over first and see whether you can do your job. So I did. I went over there and magically because of the internet, and we know now that it's you can work anywhere. I mean, after COVID, we've realized this. But back then, you know, there was so many meetings and it was all face-to-face. But back then, Skype had just sort of really come onto the, uh, you know, come in and people were using, you know, audio um you know, and it was cheap. It was pretty much free. So um, I moved to Kuching and I was able to still keep my job and still keep working and paying off my mortgage. So that was really important for me that I was like, I need to still, you know, work and and achieve my goals of, you know, financial independence. So I did, I think in terms of planning, you talk about like work planning. I probably was more planning about financial independence from as soon as I finished university. That was probably more of a focus for me and which is why I worked. I would take any job just to throw money into my mortgage. Yeah. And then, so who were your clients at that time that you were kind of working with and, and servicing from Kuching? I was doing cosmetic packaging. So I was working for cosmetic brands and back then there weren't many of them. And now again, the scene has completely changed and it was, you know, it's everywhere. Um, I'm probably most known for working with Miranda Kerr's packaging line called Cora Organics. Um, and then another Victoria's Secret model called Jessica Hart. I did her, her Lumi range. And then my biggest client was True Solutions International. They basically distribute, they had the biggest distribution of international brands in Australia, um, helping with the repackaging for brands like Declior, MD Formulations, Ilchi, um, Bare Minerals. And it was, it was a really exciting time. Yeah. And, you know, they were going into department stores, David Jones and Myers, and there was also, there was always like gift sets and, you know, Christmas, Mother's Day. So there was always so much to do, but we were also working, um, doing statistical reports as well. So there's this whole other end of, 
um, you know, designing that you can do. Um, there's a lot of money in, you know, annual reports and statistic presentations, which is quite dry, but my, you know, bread and butter was doing other design work, not just cosmetic packaging, which I still do to this day. So I don't really talk about it. When you say it, statistical design, is this like actually designing infographics and things so that people can understand yes. them better? Yes. People can understand them better for annual reports. And um, also like, you know, back then I was really interested in like, you know, startup businesses and um, and people would come to me saying, you know, I'm, I want to start up a business and I'm going for a pitch and they'd show me their presentation. I'll be like, that's crap. <laughs> <laughs> like, you need help. <laughs> you know? um, so, you know, helping people, you know, achieve that vision because you know you're trying to build a brand and you just have words and people are very visual so um that was a skill set that I have um and I'm able to help in that sense and my sister um also studied graphic design so we were working together um doing you know exciting things and she still does it today as well so we're both visual communicators I guess that's what I would say my skill set is and there's a lot of problem solving involved with that as well as listening. So um, listening to the client's, you know, problems and then, you know, trying to have a visual, you know, resolution and trying to, you know, make that um, idea come to life. Yeah. That's very interesting for me because I'm the complete opposite. Like I can, I communicate best either by telling stories or writing them and my yes. ability to communicate visually is really terrible. Like I just can't connect <laughs> the dots. So I'm always fascinated by people who, yeah, can communicate visually. Yeah, I, I don't know how, I don't know what it is. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. I think it's just the way that you're wired. I mean, I've always known that I've been artistic from young. Um, my sister's the same and I think it could be because we grew up surrounded by it and our parents were really really pushed the arts on us from young so maybe that's what it is maybe environmental I don't know but yeah I'm also a Gemini which is makes it even more complicated because I'm so am I. split personality <laughs> are you I am yeah I am yeah there you go so there's that split personality side yes yeah I think I'm I'm a different person um, to people who know me really well than I yes. am. Yes. Oh my gosh. I'm the same. I might seem like a real extrovert, but I'm actually really introverted. So there's just two sides to it. Yeah. And easily distracted by interesting ideas. I can find myself. Oh, so am I. Like I can't even stay on, I can't stay on one path for a conversation. So the fact that we're still on path right now is excellent. <laughs> okay. So tell me about how Kuching Food Aid began because at the time, you were based in Sydney, right? At the time when you decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to help here. I'm going to, you know, galvanize the support that I have in my own community, the people that I know in Kuching, and I'm going to try and solve this or help solve this problem. Yeah. Actually, at the time, I was in Kuching. So it all started when I went home. Before COVID had started, I was connected with a girlfriend of mine, Olivia Ling, who was helping families who were suffering from food insecurity um, but we were only helping 10 families a week. Um, and so I, in terms of like how it started, I guess the seed had already been planted that I knew that this was already happening in, in my community in Kuching specifically. I do live between two cities, Kuching and Sydney, and Sydney is obviously completely different. There is a lot of government support here. There are a lot of NGOs with huge funding. So food insecurity 
If you're suffering from it, there are many, many ways that you can get help. But in Kuching, where I'm from, there's still a lot of stigmatization associated with it, but it's also not easy. You can't just, you know, go on the internet and try and find where can I find food. Um, Then COVID hit and obviously everybody just, you know, ran home and just shut their doors. A lot of charities and a lot of volunteers were scared to go out and help families that they knew before COVID were having problems. I, I will be honest, I was in Sydney with my eyes pretty much closed as well. I'm like, I'm helping these 10 families, you know, that's what I can do. I wasn't really talking much about it. I did share a bit of it on on my social media platforms, but I was sort of helping more with families in Sydney because I was here. So I was helping more families in Sydney um, with food insecurity and encouraging people on Instameet, on you know Instagram to sort of have a look and see whether they want to connect. I go back to Kuching and I get a message on Instagram, someone saying to me, we're in lockdown and he sent me the area. He sent me a newspaper article. It was all legit. They were saying, I need, you know, he was saying we need masks and sanitizers. Can you help? And at the time we, I had just lost my father-in-law. So we were in mourning at the time. And I think that message at that time was something I needed. I just, I needed a mission and I needed a purpose because like misery was the only purpose I had at that time. And that message was light for me. And I just, I put it on social media saying, look, this is happening in Kuching, hoping that my friends would read it and help. And um, I went to bed the next morning I woke up and so many people had just said, I'll help. They just messaged back saying, do, this is how much I want to help with. And they told me how much. And I just said, this is an IOU. Cause I'm like, I'll just note it down so I know roughly how much money we have. I'm going to pledge my 5000 and then you guys can add up on top of it. I think we got to like 30000 within 48 hours, which was mind-blowing to me. 30000 ringgit. 38000 ringgit within like 48 hours. It was something around there. It was a lot of money. It was more money than what we needed. And social media was amazing because, you know, I was able to tap into pharmacies locally and everyone sort of pitched in with price matching, trying to like find the cheapest price the best quality item, but quick because we needed it to get down there that day. And the community came together and it was because of Instagram. Like people were just, I, I feel like at that time, people were feeling like I want to do something. I'm, I'm tired of being scared at home um, and I want to be a part of something. And they saw me going out. At that time, I actually wasn't scared about COVID as well. Like people were still messaging me going, you shouldn't be going down there. It's a red zone. And I was like, look, we've been through enough as a family and I've been tested up the wazoo for COVID just to get into ICUs. And, you know, I was like, I've been through the most dangerous parts already. And I'm like, if I want to do it, I'm going to do it. And I think people liked seeing it being done. It was like an action that was happening and it was quick. Um, But we had so much money left over. And that's really how Cooching Food Aid really did start because, it went from, you know, hand sanitizers and masks and that kampong really being appreciative that it had come down because they were at the time expensive. It's different now, but back then, you know, masks were, you know, they were expensive and there weren't many of them. Same with hand sanitizer. Like people were, you know, it was a lot of money. And at the time, the Minister for Welfare, Datuk Fatima, she reached out through a volunteer saying, I want to meet you because I heard that you raised money really quickly to help with sanitizer and masks. So we met really quickly. She had another meeting. We met on the side and she's like, would you help the poor that we are not able to help? Because the government can only help a certain amount of people, um, but undocumented, you know, people can't come forward and get aid. 
that's just that's the situation in Kuching. So there was a whole other category of people that the government aren't able to help. And I understand. It's like the government can't help everybody. And I wasn't there to, to point fingers. But at the time, it was really quite a desperate situation. I, again, used social media to share what was happening in our community. And volunteers came forward from other charities saying, we, don't, we know where families are that can't get government aid. We just need food. Like, can you help us with food? So that's how it really started was through social media. Amazing volunteers, can I tell you, from all over came forward with families. And I was able to, you know, talk to them via WhatsApp, video call, and then meet them because they would come and collect food. So I became in essentially, you know, a mini supermarket. I turned our house into a mini supermarket, um, meeting with suppliers and trying to get the best price. So the suppliers as well were amazing because I came forward and I told them, look, I'm not on selling. I would love for you to sell it to us at cost or make a tiny profit from it so that we can continue this partnership. So it went from me saying I kind of want to do something to something to it growing very, very quickly, literally within two weeks. This had just exploded and we were packing aid every day. And I look back to those days and I think, you know, we were clearly running on adrenaline. But as a family, we were in mourning and it gave us purpose. So at the time, we needed it. My husband's family, their beliefs are the first month you stay at home and you don't go out and you just, you be together. So we were all together already, but at least, you know, we were sad for the majority of the day, but for, you know, a couple of hours a day, we knew we had to pack aid and, and the volunteers just, they kept coming every day and the aid just kept, you know, increasing and increasing. And I thought to myself, how is this happening? Why is it happening? I had so many, many questions. And I was putting it all out on social media going, you know, guys, people have lost their jobs. People can't go out. They're back in those, you know, we had zones. Like if you were in a red zone, you weren't allowed to leave. And then they couldn't get food. And then the white flag movement happens months later. And I'm like, I was, we were at that, you know, at that point months before. And people were then coming to me with more interest saying, oh my goodness, we remember you've been talking about this for months. Like, this food insecurity problem that's happening in Malaysia. And I was like relieved when it happened. When everyone finally woke up to the moment that this was actually happening, um, that's when more more donors came forward saying, okay, I definitely want to help now because we believe in the mission now. But we were really, we were really living it months before the movement actually had, had actually happened. I think in the first stage of the pandemic, certainly here in Kuala Lumpur, in this part of Malaysia, there was a lot of fear. We were in a very strict lockdown. The media were reporting daily case numbers and deaths, and everyone was just very scared about catching this virus. And then we started to see the wider implications of the lockdowns. Yeah. The understanding that there was huge sections of the population who weren't, weren't able to work because of the kinds of jobs that they do are more informal type jobs. Mm -hmm. They weren't able to work if they couldn't leave their homes. Yes. Um, some people were being laid off anyway. Uh, and when you live paycheck to paycheck, that has a huge compounding impact on your all kinds of um, security, food insecurity, but also housing security. But I think the thing that amazed me about what you managed to do in Kuching is that here in KL, during the white flag movement, there was also a lot of existing NGOs that were operating in this space or ones that um, mm -hmm. were serving migrant communities and pivoted because at that point the real need yes. was food insecurity. Yes. But they weren't able to manage the 
logistical issues as well as you guys managed to? Because that's not easy, right? It's not easy. The logistics is the hardest part. So volunteers are key to it all. And they're the ones that are invested with these families. So there are so many ex-welfare workers as well as existing charities in Kuching and not just Kuching, it grew. So now we are servicing the whole of East Malaysia. So we are helping in Miri, Cebu, Bintulu and Muka um, and volunteers. It's all through word of mouth saying, you know, if you are doing a great job and you can come forward and share and be as transparent as possible, then Kuching Food Aid can come and connect and help those families with food. Um, I think this digital age now with transparency is so important. So Coaching Food Aid shifted from me, you know, and my family packing aid at home to me then realizing I'm going back to Sydney. I can't do this. This is not sustainable. And it was actually my sister-in-law who pulled me aside and goes, when you leave, you do realize that this is all over. And I was like, no, I was like, I'll keep the food coming to the house and you guys will pack it. She's like, no, because we're doing it because of you. She was the one that opened my eyes and goes, this is not sustainable. You need to think of another way. And, and I was actually angry, but then I realized, no, she's, she's bloody right. Like this is not sustainable whatsoever. So I went to supermarkets in Kuching and I was like, if I can put a box on your shelf at the time it was 50 ringgit, would you put it in? Like, would you put it as a skew in your supermarket and then pack the 50 ringgit of aid? So hold it as credit. And then when I'm, when we're ready for volunteers to come and collect the aid, you'll pack the aid. I was like, you know, it's good publicity for your supermarket. You're not losing money. I said, I want you to break even, if anything, you know, make 10 cents on the, on the 50 ringgit bag. Um, but it's something that you guys do really well because you stock items and you pack and you, uh, logistics is easy. It's all done. And what, what changed was actually getting these supermarkets on board. So it really was me, you know, using my influence, using my friends' influences as well because I was like, do you know these supermarkets? Who can, again, social media, and they came forward. They were like, I went to school with, you know, blah, blah, blahs, you know, they own this supermarket. And I'm like, well, give me their number. Set up a meeting. I'm going down. And I met with them all. Them, And, I mean, a lot of them said no. And that really fueled another fire in me because I was like, okay, fine, you said no now, but you're going to say yes later because when you see it in another supermarket, you're going to want to do it. So all the physical supermarkets were slower, but an online supermarket in Kuching, they were straight away. Like within an hour of meeting them, they were like, let's get this up online now. We can do it. And I was like, you are a legend. So Naeem from DeGrocery was really the start of it all. And online was the best because people from outside of Kuching could donate, buy their aid directly from a supermarket. And I think donors love that. They're like, I want to know where my money's going. And if you give it to a supermarket and I get a receipt, that the transparency is already there. And, um, you know, supermarkets, they've, they've been the real volunteers in that sense as well. Like they're the ones that are packing the aid now. And I know how hard it is to pack aid. It takes time and the numbers are never, the numbers are never right. So like whenever we were packing it at home, I was like, we need 68 bags. And then halfway through it, we'll realize we're not, we don't have enough oil or we don't have enough noodles. And then, you know, it could just never balance. And the supermarkets are great because when it doesn't balance, they just put in another item that's usually more expensive. We tag them when it's, when it's happening, um, they get recognition, but there's also transparency. So like a volunteer will go, they will open up the aid, take a picture. They'll let me know. We cross check to make sure that the items are what we purchased. Um, and then the volunteers are on their way. So I think coaching food aid, what's been different in the way that we're running it is it's really volunteer led. 
all the money goes direct to the supermarkets. Like it's all in aid. So we don't have any admin costs and we don't, like the volunteers pay their petrol. You can have the aid, but we will not give any money for logistics, transport or, you know, miscellaneous. And I understand why NGOs need to do it because, you know, to, for it to keep going, you know, you need to motivate. But I think I've been able to harness the power of social media to, you know, encourage people um, to help where we're not given a lot of help because Western Malaysia gets a lot of help. Can I say a lot of help because there's more food wastage there um, than there is in the east side. So um, there's bigger pools to tap in from, and there are huge companies in West Malaysia that are doing great jobs with helping with food insecurity. But unfortunately, the logistics to get it to East Malaysia, it's not worth it. So it has to be it has to be a kind of local or not really grassroots because you're working with supermarkets there. But it needs to be local. You need to be accessing what is available. You do. You do. Exactly. Um, what yeah, exactly? So we are working with local suppliers and only working with local pro- you know, local produce that we have there, but also listening to the volunteers about what they want, what the families need. So some missions they're like no eggs. It's too hard. They're all going to crack. It's too it's it's too bumpy. We just have to listen. They're like ten kilos of rice. Ditch the eggs. They need oil. So that we listen. We're like every mission's different. And in some missions, you know, milk is so important because they've got lots of newborn babies going into this kampong and that, you know, you still get backlash. A lot of people say, you know, women should be breastfeeding. We should be encouraging that. I said, but, you know, if a woman is suffering from food insecurity, can you imagine already, you know, the stress um, and then to, you know, I mean, not all women can. I mean, I struggle with breastfeeding and I've got access to everything. So, um, you know, breast milk's another one that we listen to. And another one is actually bedding. So a lot of these communities get affected by floods and fire. Food is secondary. It's actually, you know, having a mattress and a pillow so they can sleep somewhere if anyone will take them in. So that's another thing that we've also pivoted funds towards. And we've worked with a really amazing local bedding manufacturer, um, Dream Master, who have done bedding at an incredible price. I think it's like 48 ringgit now to donate a mattress and a pillow, which is you know, such, it is a really good price and we're able to help families who are being displaced um, quickly. Yeah. So this skill that maybe you always had it, but certainly I'm sure the Kuching Food Aid Project like really harnessed it in a way to connect all of these different dots, to connect NGOs, volunteers with corporates, with supermarkets, and then also with funding, both private funding as well as, you know, funding from sponsors. What have you learned from that and what advice would you give to other community-led projects or NGOs that are trying to, you know, tackle really big problems but have financial limitations and and also manpower limitations? I think, like, for me, like I said to you, like, I'm not a planner. I don't think big. So maybe that's the first thing. Like, you can't plan you know, community-led initiatives because it's the community that's going to lead whether it's going to be successful or not successful. Pick something that is happening in your community, um, you know, and it has to be something that you understand. And if you don't understand it, you need to surround yourself with people who understand and you need to listen and you have to pivot. That's another thing that I've realised with Coaching Food Aid is the constant pivoting and the constant changes that happen because, you know, even this morning, like, you know, we had four missions go out yesterday. Only one was successful. The other three is still pending. 
you know, and it's a constant, like, you know, work in progress. I think my advice, what would my advice be? Oh, my gosh. It's not for the faint-hearted. That's definitely one thing. You need to you need to realise what I always talk about is you need to realise what your superpower is because you can't do everything. For me, going on the ground and connecting and seeing families, I thought was what I would love to do. But I've realised that that is not my superpower. If anything, that's my kryptonite. Like that's my weak weak point because I then get I can't I can't let go of that emotion. I come home and I go into a depression, and then I'm completely useless to everybody. And that's when I go silent because I'm just thinking, like you were talking about before, like Gemini's processing. I then go into over-processing mode where I'm just going around in a circle. Like, why, 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 why? And I'm not doing anything. I realized my superpower was actually sitting behind a computer coordinating and listening to the problems in an environment that I'm most comfortable in, maybe because I'm a graphic designer and all I used to do and all I still do is sit in front of the computer. Um, it's the same skill set that I'm very comfortable in and that I, that I think I'm, you know, I excel in. I think if I didn't go back to Sydney, Coaching Food Aid would not be as big as it actually is now, which is a weird thing. I have almost had to step away to be able to see, you know, a bigger picture because when I was there, I was just packing aid and going out and, you know, delivering it and, and the time taken, I could wipe out six hours of my day just, you know, packing aid and delivering it. Um, but I met incredible volunteers that that's what they love to do. They don't want to pack the aid. They're like, I just want to connect the food. And I'm like, okay, that's your skill. And they, they're the ones that are doing all the information gathering and they love that. And that's a special skill because I know I don't have that skill because I come home and I just cry. You know, it's everybody, everyone's different. You know, you hear one story and then you think that's bad. Then you hear another story and you're like, that's even worse. Like it just, it's never ending. So a lot of people come to me and they ask, you know, how and why and do they deserve the aid, a lot of that kind of stuff. And I said, when you start hearing the stories that if I've learned anything, it takes a certain, you know, you've got to swallow your dignity to ask for aid. So if they're going to ask for it, we're going to give it to them. There's no questions asked, you know, because once when, when I start asking the questions, I'm like, I wish I never asked. I wish I never asked, you know. So that then led on to the next project that I'm working on, which is um, coaching um, a, a support centre that in partnership with local NGOs in Kuching. So I saw, I see so many cases come through where we, I do read through the reports. So the volunteers gather all the information and, and issue the reports for each case. And you read through these reports and, and it leaves an impact on you. You read it and you're like, something needs to be done. And then it's a question like, are you going to do something about it? Or are you going to pass it on to somebody? Or are you just going to let it sit in that pile of like, don't know what to do with you? For me, when I feel like I can do something, I'm like, what's it to me to make a phone call, you know, or do a post on social media? And the best thing about Instagram so far has been that there are so many people with so many amazing skill sets that come forward and they're like, I can help you with this. What changes then, I guess, in people when you when you really ask for help and when you show vulnerability, is that what makes people think, oh, okay, I'm going to come forward and I'm going to help? I think storytelling, I think people love to hear what's happening and storytelling is so, you know, everybody wants to hear what's happening. I think I love telling a story. I love sharing what's going on. And I probably, I always say I'm an oversharer about things that are, I'm really interested in. And I feel like for the people that are connected with me on Instagram, I think they're, 
they sort of invested in the madness. My brain can be sometimes like one section, one time I'm talking about things that I like, you know, on TikTok or things that I, you know, that I'm cooking. But then when I talk about, you know, something that matters to me that I think is unjust um, and people just jump on and they're, they're interested and they're listening. I don't know. I think it's a, it's, it's a wake up call. I think sometimes Instagram, you do need a wake up call from all the prettiness. Cause I feel like Instagram sort of turned into this braggagram where everyone's sort of like bragging about stuff. It's very consumerism based and I'm not going to lie because I have two brands and I do need to share, you know, what I'm selling as a designer. Um, and I use that space too, to show, you know, the work that I'm working on as a graphic designer and, I guess that's bragging as well in some weird way. So, like, I'm I'm a part of the problem. I will ha- put my hand up and say I'm definitely a part of the problem. How do you change that? Because, you know, that's why I joined Instagram because I loved photography. I majored in photography. So, taking photos is something that I've always done my whole life. I saw that I could use Instagram to to share my love for photography but also share my brands. And then it's, you know, it's gone from a very quite primitive space to such a complicated shopping space I feel um because we're being sold everything through Instagram but I use it as like a visual you know it's a visual yellow pages nowadays because like you want to get a cake you go to Instagram to try and find a cake you you're looking for a good book to read you go to Instagram Instagram knows what you like and they sell you ads and then you're like I actually do like this thank you Instagram so I will swipe up I think I now have shifted how my gaze is on my Instagram. I think my Instagram has changed a lot since COVID. When I talk about a cause, I always have an action. So like if I'm going to talk about it, I want you to be a part of of the conversation. So I don't just say like, you know, period poverty is upsetting me right now as an example. I'll be like, period poverty is happening and this is what I'm doing. And if you want to jump on, jump on with me. I think I use my social media to invite people to join always have a call to action. I always feel because people are invested and they're listening to the story. They want to be a part of it. Let them be a part of it. I'm always about that. For me, whenever I put a story out, like when I put it on and share share something that's happening, there's always a call to action. I feel I want to motivate you to, to be a part of it. I want you to sit with me. <laughs> I think that is probably one of the most useful, tangible takeaways for anybody who's trying to build a community, engage a community for a particular purpose, that's it. When, you, when you're talking about the story or the issue on social media, include a call to action and see what happens. Like see if you yeah. can engage people that see way. See what happens and start small, start really small. Don't have too big a goal. It could just be, you know, starting the conversation or sometimes, you know, it's funds because money makes things happen. So I just wish there was, you know, endless pits of it so that we could solve things. So tell me um, what is happening with the Kuching Community Social Support Centre. When will it open? What are the plans? Who are the NGOs you're working with? Okay. So how do we go? How do to go all the <laughs> way back? When Kuching, I know, oh my gosh, this, it was a mad idea. Can I tell you? It was literally a mad idea of like 11 o'clock at night. But it was a great idea. I may have been two wine glasses in. It was a great idea. I was two, I definitely was two wine glasses in, basically just yelling at my husband about how like more needs to be done. Like I was definitely in a rage when the idea was formed. And I think I was more like holding a mirror to my, to both of our faces. Cause I was like, what are we doing in our community? Like we're not doing anything. I just felt like at that time I was like, we have so much, we need to do more. 
I'll be honest, that was really what it is. I was really calling out our privilege. I was calling out we had things that I felt we could do. I don't know. At that time, it was really just a call out. It was a massive call out to myself and my husband. And then it became a call out to my family because I was like, we need to do more. My mum's actually from Kuching and she has four shop lots. She has four shop lots in town. And I told her, I'm like, you know, do you, do you really need the rental for these places? You're about to renovate it to go back on and, you know, rent it back out again because it was, it was just before COVID when all the tenants had moved mm-hmm. out. She was going to renovate it and then, you know, release them out again. And I said, this would be a perfect space for a community centre. And my mum just said yes because my mum is heavily involved in philanthropic work. So I was definitely raised in a family where people my, watching my mum help for every cause under the sun. She's one of the types of people who put her hand up as well. Um, And she just said yes. And I told my husband, who's actually a property developer, I'm like, you're going to do the renovation for free. And he just was like, whatever you want, darling. (laughs) (laughs) I I was like, you're doing it. And he goes, what are you going to do? I'm like, I don't know. We haven't figured that part out yet. And he was the one who said, you know, you need a plan. And I told you, I'm like, I'm not a planner, but that was the first time I actually went to work and I opened up, you know, PowerPoint presentation, Excel spreadsheet, and I started typing ferociously a plan. What could a community centre in Kuching do? What would it look like? And I guess Kuching Food Aid was the real start of it because I realised, you know, I'm a little NGO working out of our house and I need to get out of the house. I can't be the only NGO that's working out of her house. And I realized as I reached out to other NGOs and saw their operations, they're the same. They can't take meetings anywhere because it's in their house. So it's always at a coffee shop and then they can't do workshops because they don't have, they've got to rent a space and it costs money. So it really started with like, okay, I'm not the only NGO that's, you know, running on zero, you know, there's got to be others. And I've identified many in Kuching I went back to Fatima, the Minister for Welfare, and I said, look, wouldn't it be amazing if local NGOs and government agencies could work together? Like, could that happen? I was like, government need NGOs and NGOs need government too. We don't talk enough. You know, I said, especially, you know, with Coaching Food Aid, I would love to know where you're going to send your aid so that we don't double up um, and we can talk about, you know, things that are happening. So I was like, we could all get in the same room together and just listen. Nothing needs to be done, but if we are all in the same room listening, what could happen? So um, yeah. YB formed a little committee and got the NGOs and the local agencies to come together and have two workshops where so much conversation came out of it. And it was a real eye-opener and the NGOs really mm-hmm. were, you know, you know, think they came forward with their wish list basically of like things that they need to do good in our local community. And my husband and I really listened to all of the wish lists and we pretty much put nearly all of them into this one centre. So that's basically, you know, our family's pledge to, you know, Kuching City for the next five years. So it's a rent-free space, all fitted out with all the furniture, with all of the facilities that they asked for. The government is coming to the table to help with the operational costs and hiring of key, you know, figures that we need to coordinate between the NGOs and the local agencies. So it's it's an experiment for the next five years. It has never been done before. Um, and it's sort of like a test pilot for um, East Malaysia to see, you know, could this work in other cities where private, you know, private companies are coming forward to do the infrastructure um, and inviting local NGOs 
the hardest part about it is, you know, I want everybody to, to be involved. Every single NGO and charity and any association that is doing good will be able to come into the space. That's an open invitation to every single person. So in saying like who's coming in, obviously Coaching Food Aid because that's an NGO that is like held close to me will be in there. Um, there's also going to be a soup kitchen and there's going to basically be a co-working level specifically for NGOs, charities and associations and also for them to conduct workshops and do training in. And they can do this all for free. They can all access this free. space for free. Yes. So for five years. That I think is the really exciting piece, right? Because I was talking to somebody about this the other day. If you want to solve the real problems that are facing our communities, our world, it needs to be this um, collaboration between government, between NGO, and then most importantly, the private sector. Because that is, you know, NGOs don't have the the funds or sometimes the scale um, to be able to, to achieve some of their ambitions. And government will always have limitations. But the private sector has a bit more flexibility if they can find the cash. They have, exactly. And the private sector have so much power to actually to do good. And, like, I've with Coaching Food Aid now has worked with some really, really big companies, you know, and they want to do good and they've got the funds. And, you know, there are still issues. I think a lot of NGOs have a problem with tax exemption. That's a big issue, and I'll say it out loud here, um, because if you get tax exemption, then you can get more donations. And NGOs just can't get them. It's very, very hard. For me, I'm really just focused on I want to help where the government can't help. So that's where we fall into. Private donors are fueling it and private businesses are fueling it. And I think what we've realised now is that people collectively can do so much when their minds are set to it. And that's what people have been doing. They're doing it every day, you know. There's so much good going on every second of the day. People are doing good with private funds and, and, and making things happen. So I'm not unique in any in any way, but I think what I'm what I'm excited about is like opening up conversations where traditionally people weren't talking. Yeah. I wanted to ask, has any of the learnings that you went through in terms of um, setting up the Kuching uh, Community Social Services Center, mm-hmm. but also with Kuching Food Aid, like mobilizing so many different um, sectors, right? From the private sector to government sector to working with other NGOs. Have any of those learnings translated into your paid work? Have you found yourself working differently or managing your team differently as a result? I think think it was the other way around. I think being a business owner helped me be able to, you know, start this NGO and, and, you know, connect with so many different people. I think the businesses, being a business owner actually gave me all the skill sets because, you know, I'm dealing with customers online. I'm dealing with my staff. I'm dealing with, you know, supplies, purchasing, you know, all of those skills that I had as a business owner has transcended into, into philanthropic work. Definitely. Um, you know, with the brands, we had to meet with, you know, press and media. We had to meet with, you know, celebrities and ask them, you know, would you, you know, you're meeting all these different types of people and same with the philanthropic work. You're meeting so many different people and being able to talk and communicate. Um, it's sort of the same in some, in some weird way. 
But when Coaching Food Aid obviously came in, I was like, we need to use our websites because before Coaching Food Aid was really established, I needed a way to be able to get people to donate money. So, I mean, it was a real nightmare for accounts because they were like, this is so bad. You cannot do this. I'm like, people want to donate (laughs) money and we already have a payment gateway. Like, go. Just, I was like, we'll deal with it later. Like, just open up, you know, and I encouraged so many other businesses to do the same and they did because I was, they came to, came to me saying, what can we do? And I was like, you know, people love your brands. They love what you do. And if you can open up your website to donations and then show them what you're doing with the money, they'll donate. And they did. So a lot of fashion brands did that as well during the pandemic. They opened up their websites and did food aid. So following what we had done, Exactly. What did you do? Did you put a product on your website that was an aid product and that that can go into their basket? Yes. So it made it so much because they were already our existing customers and they've got accounts and they know how to do it. And we got a lot of donations when we opened up. So, and what we did was for every 10 that was donated online, Bauerhaus donated one. So it was like we were giving, Bauerhaus was giving on top of it. Both brands had their own CSR giving back as well. So it was excellent. I thought, so if you have your own brands and you want to open up to charity, I think it's a great it's a great way to connect your customers to a cause that is, you know, something that's dear to your heart. But again, it has to the story needs to be there. You need to share what's happening for it to be effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it needs to be relevant already to your customers. Exactly. You know, I, I just wanted to go to one one last thing before we just do a couple of quick fire questions. But you've Use the word manifested, I've noticed, to talk about your birthing of the Kuching Community Social Services yes. Centre. And I'm interested in your use of that word. But you have birthed a lot of different things, at least three businesses. Yeah, <laughs> well, three businesses, two children, yeah. <laughs> um, a NGO, and now a community services centre. Yeah. And is there a process that you go through when you've decided you want to do something or is it just you take small steps forward? You know, you have the idea and then you figure out how to get to step A and then B. I think you manifest something when you've become completely and utterly possessed by it. I'm one to talk about a lot of things, but when I become possessed about something and then I'm like, you know what, I'm going to do it. Even though I don't know what, what I'm doing, but this is, this is the path that I want to go down. And then I talk about it and then people will say to me, oh, I know this person. I'm like, oh, really? Can you connect me? And then we'll meet and then we'll talk. You need people around you to make things happen. So I think the manifestation is really just like, you know, the idea that I want to do something and then everyone coming together. Because if you if you just keep everything inside your head, nothing's going to happen. Does that make sense too? Gosh. <laughs> it does. It definitely makes sense. It definitely makes sense. Yeah, I think we need to manifest and talk about things so that we can meet more people who can help you, you know, get to that get to that path. Because you can't yeah. do anything alone. That's one thing that I've learned. So that's a nice way, I think, to ask, to segue into what does purpose mean to you? Ooh. Ah. <sighs> I feel like I have always had purpose. That's a weird thing to say. Um, But I think that's my personality. I'm always like I have to do something. I'm that type of person. I can't sit down and do nothing. Like even if I'm sitting down, I'm like I should read. And then when I'm reading, I'm like I should be listening to music while I read. And then when I'll be like I should be listening to a podcast while I read. Like it's 
you know, that, you know, trying to get as much information into my head. I think purpose is doing something that you really enjoy and it takes a long time to figure out what you enjoy. It's almost like a journey then. It is because, like, I always – people always say to me, like, oh, what – you know, you're done. you figured everything out. I'm like, no way. Like, I'm 39. You know, I've got so many more – things that I'm going to do in my life. Like I always say, by the time I turn 80, I'm going to turn into a crazy artist who does really bad paintings <laughs> that everyone's going to judge and go yuck. Like, and then I said, and in my nineties, I'm going to, you know, be bejeweling my wheelchair. Like there are things that I'm like, <laughs> you know, I will have different, different things that I'm interested in. I think everybody should have different things that they're interested in. You're not set on one purpose. So when you look into the future um, and I'm talking, you know, partly about uh, Kuching Food Aid, but just in general, as someone who really sees a need to do good and to inspire other people to to be good, are you scared or are you hopeful? I'm hopeful. I'm always scared. I always say to people, "Oh my god, I'm terrified." I say it all the time because I am. It's a it's a yin and a yang. I'm te- I am terrified. I am hopeful. I hope that you know you, you want this to go away, but it's not going to go away because there are huge issues that are happening in our community that I can't solve. And I know that now, like I can't solve everything. No one can solve everything. But what you can do is you can hold a mirror to those who come from privilege and ask them to, you know, come sit with us and 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 see what we can do together. I feel like it is everybody's duty who are in a position to do something, to do something. Like we all need to do something. I agree. Yeah. What is the best piece of advice that anyone's ever given you? Oh, my goodness. That my children will be okay. (laughs) My children will be okay, truly. I think as a working mom, um, there's guilt because I am doing a lot of things and I am, I'm not your typical, you know, mom. I'm not, you know, by any ways. I don't know what a typical mom is, but I know I don't look like her. Um, (laughs) but (laughs) But I guess from a lot of other, you know, working mums that I speak to, because we always talk about that, that guilt, because I'm like, if you're killing it at work, you're really, you're doing crap at home. Yeah, the kids are going to be okay. I think that's, that's it, like as a working mum and, um, and that it's good for them to see, you know, good for them to see you working. Uh, I'm raising two boys and I think that's probably one of the hardest um, things to do right now in the landscape that we live in. I'm raising my boys to be feminists and I talk about that a lot now and I want more women to, you know, say that too. It's like we need to. Yeah. If we want if we want things to change, we have to start with the boys. But the kids will be okay. The kids will be okay. The kids will be okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's the message. The kids will be okay. I think when you become a mum, a lot of a lot of, you know, society's telling you stay at home with the kids. Yeah, I think that my advice is to other women out there it's never too late to step out of that box and try something. But, but when it turns sour, say it out loud. That did not work for me. What was I thinking? We all make mistakes and that's what people don't talk about failure enough. I feel they do not talk about failure enough. So do you have a big failure then? You want to share? My first job interview, I failed massively. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think I, that was the first failure where I was like, oh, my gosh, I, I graduated with first-class honours. You're supposed to hire me. Like, I'm your dream. And they were like, no, you're not. You're nothing. You are not what we want. Like, and I, that was my first failure, I feel. 
um, that really speared me where I was like, brought me right back down. I was like, oh, okay, I'm not wanted in your space. So I've had so many failures. We fail every day. You're People fine. talk about it. I'm totally fine. You learn from it, you cry. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I'm a big crier. So like when things get really bad, I just cry it out and I talk about it. So I think talking is so important in failure because the more you talk about it, the more it's, it gets drilled into your head and you, those feelings are needed because then when you do something that feels right and it feels good, you can feel the good because you felt the really bad. Look, thank you so much for your time, Chantelle. This has been awesome chat. Oh, um, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to to hear the news, which I think is going to be coming out soon about the Kuching Community Social it's Support Center. It's going to happen soon, um, sooner than later, I hope. But you know, building will be ready soon. But it's all the other ten thousand hoops we need to jump through to get it open. But yeah, I'm yeah. excited. And thank you for letting me share about it on your on your podcast today. Oh, no, I mean. Yeah, it's been it's been awesome. And I'll be posting all of the information about it in the show notes. So if there are people who want to support, yes. they can do that. And they can always message me. So message me on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I did. Like you did. <laughs> See, there you go. And yeah. it happened. It happened. So, you know, it's good. It's a good space. When you listen to Chantelle, she has so much energy. It's not difficult to understand how that became a superpower in terms of rallying people, whether they were volunteers, private businesses, or even people working in government behind her causes, both with Kuching Food Aid, but also with the Kuching Social Support Center. She says her superpower is sitting behind a computer organizing logistics, but I think she's selling herself short. The one message from this conversation that really stood out was to talk to anyone about your cause, whoever will listen. And even if your goals feel insurmountable, share them. The more people you can invite to sit with you, the more people you will be able to impact. If you felt impacted by this episode and you want to help out with Kuching Food Aid or any of the other projects that Chantelle is involved in, the links are in the show notes. Or, as she said, you can also reach out to her directly. I hope this episode has given you some ideas on how to reach more people with your message. And you'll hear from me again next week. Bye.